for Dynamic Deputies. Hello and welcome to the Dynamic Deputies podcast, run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. Steve, it's a pleasure to be recording with you once again. Thanks, Russell, and hello to everyone listening. Before we get into today's episode, Russell, I just want to say a massive thank you to everyone who has left a positive rating or review for our book on Amazon. We're still averaging five stars, which is incredible, and we are so eternally grateful. We are indeed. Thank you so much, everybody. When we released the book, I can remember feeling extremely (laughs) anxious about how it would be received, but we've had so many kind and reflective comments now, so I can finally sleep peacefully once again. (laughs) Get them black sacks under your eyes going (laughs) Absolutely. You're so right, though. It was nerve-wracking, but it's been a huge relief to see the amazing feedback given. And it's really interesting, Russ, that you mentioned the word reflective there, as that's our theme for today's episode. I think most teachers at some point in their career have been told how important it is to be a reflective practitioner. And we thought we'd delve into this idea a little more today. Yes, it's just the two of us today. And as Steve said, we're thinking about what we mean by reflective practice. We want to go a little deeper into why this is such an important characteristic for anyone working in education, as well as exploring various examples in our own careers where reflection has led to growth. So let's get right into the why, Russell. Why should teachers, TAs and leaders in education be reflective practitioners? Yeah, I think this is an important place to start. I'm going to begin with the most important reason in my eyes, and that is because teaching and learning is incredibly complicated. Now, I don't necessarily mean that our approaches to teaching and learning should be particularly complicated, but I mean the whole process of children acquiring and then using new knowledge and skills is very complex. One of the main reasons for this is that our schools are just very complex places, as are the human beings inside of them. (laughs) They are indeed, Russ. So, okay, we have got a large listening base across many countries now. Let's just list some of the variables we'd see if we walked into some of the different classrooms of those listening right now. Let me start by thinking, how about the physical environments we'd see? We would see small Victorian classrooms with poor ventilation on one hand, but we'd also see state-of-the-art, well-lit classrooms in modern buildings on the other. Yes, and within those environments, there would be different resources, books, displays, and so on. And each of these environments would put different sensory demands on the children sat in those classrooms. And we know that this affects how well some children learn. And that's not even mentioning the kind of cultural differences we'd see in different schools. For example, how happy the staff and children are, or whether the school community is going through a particularly tough time. Okay, and what about the teachers themselves, Steve? If we simply look at experience level first, I know that I was not the same teacher in my first year that I was after even three or four years. No, not at all. And it'll always be a profession, Russ, where actual experience on the ground counts for a huge amount. There's that old adage, every day is a school day, and that is so Mm. true. Now, you only get this through teaching for years on end and meeting hundreds of different children with different needs. And what about the kind of variation we'd see between teachers? Yeah, this is something that really fascinates me. Clearly, every teacher has their own quirks and approaches. But as a leader, I've become really interested in how you retain people's individuality whilst also having whole school systems that benefit every child. And then you also have those inherent personality differences between teachers, perhaps some who are naturally very energetic, but also those who are naturally a lot calmer. It's just interesting to wonder how those different personalities benefit the different learners in the classroom. Mm. Okay, so we thought about environments, cultures, the experience levels of teachers, 
and teachers' unique personality differences. What about the teacher's subject knowledge? That has a huge impact on learning, doesn't it, Russ? Yeah, of course. And when we're thinking about primary school teachers, a big aim must be to become deeply knowledgeable about a wide range of subjects during our careers. Steve, I think the list could go on and on in terms of the variation we'd see in classes across the country and globally. But the one last one I'd mention for now is the children themselves. I am still meeting children after all these years and thinking, oh, I've not met one of those before. (laughs) That is so true, Russ. Every child is so unique. And while we can't completely tailor the school experience to every individual, it's important to remember that sometimes we will need to adapt or strengthen our teaching toolkit to help every child we're lucky enough to serve. Absolutely. So the work that we do is very complex and there are so many factors at play that determine the success of our efforts. Steve, I was lucky enough to see Dylan Williams speak at a conference many years ago and he was talking about this very issue and he said something along the lines of, all I'm asking is for you to keep learning until either you retire or die. (laughs) (laughs) I absolutely loved this because here was this highly intelligent guy who pretty much lives and breathes academic research, very much acknowledging that when you work in education, you just have to remain open to learning new information, both in light of the research, but also your own experiences in the classroom. That is such a great quotation, Russ. Thanks for sharing that one. And I completely agree with it. I think teaching is both amazing and frustrating because you never stop learning there's always something new to learn and this is very much the case in school leadership too the hard thing about our profession is that we can often feel very underappreciated Russell so how do we remain reflective without feeling like we're never good enough yeah this is such a great point Steve I have had many moments this year when I've not felt good enough and listeners to my highs and lows of teaching episode will have heard me in one of those emotional dips Yeah, I think we'd all like more positive recognition for the hard work we do. And I'd love to work in a climate which didn't feel so high stakes all the time. But I guess what keeps me determined to keep learning and being reflective is that it's not actually about Ofsted or anything like that. It's about wanting to get it right for the children in my school and they're worth remaining reflective for. I couldn't agree more, Russ. That is so the reason why we should be reflective. So being reflective is about a lifelong commitment to getting better at what we do in order to help our children be successful. Mm. What we're keen to do now is explore some more common scenarios where teachers or leaders could do with exercising that reflective approach. Yeah, let's start in the classroom with teachers, Steve. Now, I can think of so many situations where teachers need to be reflective. So I'm going to throw some of these out there. and We can just chat them through. Then we'll do the same with some leadership scenarios. Sounds perfect to me. Okay, so let's begin with teachers in the classroom. A common one that I can remember doing when I was class-based, Steve, you get to break time or lunchtime, you've got that fuzzy head feeling, you're a bit exhausted and exasperated, and you wander into the staff room with your lunch or your snack and you frustratingly vent to one of your colleagues about the lesson you've just taught and the fact the kids just didn't seem to get it. (laughs) You know, you thought you'd prep that lesson perfectly, just didn't land at all. Children didn't understand it. And, you know, I still as a leader here, teachers do this sometimes. It's a really natural thing to do. Why is being reflective important in a scenario like that? Well, I think, Russ, there's nothing more disappointing, firstly, of spending your whole Saturday and Sunday planning a lesson, delivering it on a Monday, and the children just didn't land. It didn't land with them. We can't understand why, because we feel on paper we've gone through the stages to success for that lesson. They don't get it. So we've got to think, right, 
Let's break it down. We can then think, why didn't they get it? What, what Did we not model the correct scaffolded technique of what to do in that lesson? Did we not explain with our talk how best they could have learned in that lesson? Did we give them enough time? Um, because I've been there before, us and um, time-sensitive lessons where I've just gone on too much. I know I needed to dictate to a degree, but I've gone on too long. I've lost the pace of the lesson. I've lost interest in children, and therefore the work just wasn't there. Go on, Russ. I was just listening there, Steve, and I'm, I'm just glad you began. You talked about a couple of things there with modelling, because in my career the most common gap in a lesson that just hasn't landed has been modeling is teachers assuming and I include myself in that when I say teachers that we've done everything we need to do but actually we haven't spelled out the obvious bit whether that be a particular strategy or a certain approach or the way we want it done it's so often the thing that teachers say yeah I didn't model enough we have an expectation in our brain when we deliver a lesson of what we should open up a book or or whatever they're working on and what we should see. Mm. And if that doesn't match the expectation of the lesson and the outcome, then we've got to analyse why they did not get it. And normally, for me, it definitely was down to, did I model it well enough? And I'm not talking about modelling it so well that I could say to some of my low achievers, okay, you basically got a script there. You can do this. Come on, let's go. No, because I want children to be thinking forthrightly for themselves. But if it's not modeling, it's not time, then I need to look at, did I communicate it well enough? Mm. Or was it just pitched incorrectly for my children? Yeah. Yeah. And I think you know, the way you're asking yourself questions, I know when we spoke to Adam Boxer on his uh, episode about explanations, he called this just looking in the mirror, didn't he? Mm, yeah. Um, it, as, as a term they use in their school, which is, okay, it hasn't gone quite right. Look in the mirror. What was it? And it's hard in a podcast like this to generalize, but what we're trying to encourage people listening to do is just just ask those kind of questions Steve was asking there. Did I model? Did I pitch the lesson quite right? Did I go a bit too fast or a bit too slow? Did I rush the content? Another one that's really common for me, Steve, in my experience is people overcomplicating lessons. Mm. So either putting too much content into that individual lesson or actually just almost over preparing and I know there's been some interesting thoughts shared recently about things like pre-prepared powerpoints and how they sometimes kind of restrict teachers to the pre-prepared script I know Adam Box has talked about that I know Emma Turner's talked a bit about that but actually there's a real power in just the pen and the flip chart and a clear explanation in your head and if there's something that's really stuck with me from that Adam Boxer podcast, please do listen to it if you've not and, and do read that chapter in his book about explaining secondary science, but it's still great for primary practitioners, is how he constructs an explanation from scratch. So he doesn't go straight in there with 40 slides about, I don't know, the human heart. He'll gradually build up their understanding. And that's really, really stuck with me now when I've planned little sequences of work just trying to build that sophistication really gradually i think sometimes we throw too much at children too soon yeah. bombard them with information and there's that kind of cognitive overload there isn't there russ it completely reminds me of my first year as an nqt and probably my second year as well actually because i remember creating my written plans on the laptop then i would transfer so much of that to a powerpoint that i would literally the children would come in they'd see the learning objective they'd see the all most and some on there then i'd skip to uh, the next slide and it'd have like my introduction which is basically my introduction of my plan of this is what i'm going to do and do you know what i remember having this conversation with a fellow teacher and she said that's great 
that stands for your visual learners. That does it's all right there. So if they don't listen to you, <laughs> it's all on the board. But actually, it became a bit deaf by PowerPoint. And it became so structured. And I've had conversations as a leader with teachers when I said, don't be afraid to come away from your plan. Don't be afraid to come away from the safety net of what's on the screen. If the children aren't understanding it, flip chart and pen, the basics. Let's go back to basics. Let's come away from the pace of this lesson that's planned our head and really dissect what they are not getting. Because if we could do it in the here and now, the impact is, and the progress would be there. And it's for this reason, Steve, I really encourage ECTs now on this two-year programme of development to use their ECT time to just go and watch their mm-hmm. colleagues because there's an irony in our profession that the people that get to see the most teaching are the leaders who have now done their years of teaching and are coming away from the classroom and it's kind of like I get to watch so many lessons particularly when we're recruiting and that sort of thing and I see these things and they become obvious to me you know I see you know a powerpoint slide with 50 bits of information on it and I can sit there like a child where the child sat and go well of course this is overwhelming but for that teacher they're so fixed in seeing their point of view at the front and needing to over prepare in their head that they've just missed a trick really where if perhaps in their first couple of years of teaching they were out watching their colleagues a bit more they might notice that gosh yeah look at whoever down the corridor who keeps things really simple when I sit in her lessons and I watch from the back I, I just feel like she's not overwhelming the children I feel like I can take in everything she's got to say whereas when I went and observed him down the other end of the corridor he put loads on his slides and it was just too much to take in I'm going to make sure I don't do that in my lesson so I would really encourage people at the start of their career to get out and see other people teach and whatever stage of your career you know do do ask your leaders if you can observe other people if there's a particular lesson or something that doesn't really land for you it doesn't mean that you're going to go and see someone who's perfect but you will always pick up do's and don'ts from going and observing your colleagues don't you think yeah and i don't want to bash leadership right now but and it might sound brutal but it's a failure of leadership if we do not encourage and give time to our ects and if we're doing coaching within the school to our teachers and our support staff to get out and see other teachers do this because the consistency is only there if we're able to see them. Yeah. And like you said, we are in a luxurious position of leadership where we get to see the most lessons taught by different people, different members of staff. And if we, we can share that all we like, but that's never as powerful as go and see that person. And naturally, we would be more reflective if we're able to get out and see people. And if we can then analyse, we can reflect and take bits away from everyone else and that will improve practice all over. Brilliant. So there's those individual lessons and we've talked there about the importance of teachers being reflective and just having those questions they ask themselves about different aspects of their lesson and and that kind of intellectual curiosity about where it might have gone wrong and, and being willing to go back into that next lesson or the next day and try something different. What about a situation like this, Steve? This is one I see a lot as a leader when people come to me in a bit of a panic. (laughs) The kids flunk some kind of test or assessment. They just don't do as well as the teacher had anticipated. The teacher thought they were doing a good job of teaching that sequence of maths, for example. And then boom, the, the test scores just don't reflect what they thought was going in. There's a temptation, isn't there, in that moment for the teacher to kind of think, the kids, they've let me down, you know, they've not focused what would we want the reflective teacher to do in that moment when, when the test results coming in, they're not so, not so great. If the kids flunk the test as a teacher, 
I know that my heart is near palpitations. I'm panicking. I'm thinking, oh gosh, I've got to deliver some kind of data to a senior leadership team. And the kids just have not done as well as I thought they would do. So I'm backtracking to a degree in my mind already and thinking, oh, why didn't they do that well? I taught this brilliantly. But acknowledge it. They didn't do that well. And then you work to the wire. Could it have been that when they've come to a test, that either the wording in the test doesn't marry up that well with what we've taught? Could it have been that the delivery just didn't land like we were saying earlier? Within an individual lesson, yes, but maybe across a series of lessons, because I know, us that it's really tempting as a teacher who's time deficit, uh, or time deficient, sorry, that it's easy to go and grab a PowerPoint, is to grab slides on a common resource makers and that might not fit exactly with what we want to be teaching and particularly in the wider curriculum subjects where they don't just don't quite tailor to our curriculum because guess what one size doesn't fit all and it's really tempting as a teacher and i've been there before i've taken some very generic slides and thought oh, i can i can tailor this a little bit to, to our curriculum and then by the time it comes around to assessment oh, it just didn't land and it just doesn't marry up to what I wanted. So, Rush, you must have been there as well, especially as a maths coordinator, for example, who, who was very data-driven. You must have encountered teachers who maybe experienced this flunking of the test or even yourself being there and thinking, I'm a maths coordinator. My kids didn't <laughs> do as well. Definitely, Stephen. I think you've raised some great points that I want to kind of pick up on there and build on, really. So you talked, and this one links really nicely to your point about me being a maths lead. Uh, you talked about things coming up in the test but look a bit different or were phrased in a way that the children weren't uh, used to. And I've had this exact conversation with teachers where they've gone, well, it's because in the white rose scheme or whatever, there, there weren't those questions or, or we didn't do it quite like that in class. And I have to sort of gently explain that if we're teaching maths well, then we're building in conceptual and procedural variation into the way we teach. That's an area of mastery. So children need to be really used to seeing things expressed in different ways. So, for example, a really straightforward one that comes to mind all, all the time is if children get really used to the equal sign always being near the end of a number sentence. <laughs> and then in a test, which, of course, won't have it there, will it? It will have it near the beginning of the, the, the sentence. If they've not got a good conceptual understanding that the equal sign is about balance and about the, mm -hmm. the value on one side being of equal value to that on the other, then, of course, they're going to struggle when it looks a bit different. However, if we've made that concept clear in our teaching from nursery upwards, and this is a, a broader point here, actually, not just about that one teacher, but the journey those children have taken through the school, then the children are going to find that difficult. So I would say from a maths point of view, making sure there's variation in the teaching sequences is really, really important and that children have a deep conceptual understanding of ideas. And this is why sometimes when it's tempting to reach for the very shallow uh, teaching of concepts because you think you'll get them through a test, the irony there is, is you're actually going to really fail them when things come up that look a bit different. Another point I would raise with this, Steve, is about um, and it brings me back to that brilliant episode we did with Professor Coe about proxies for learning is if we've got a poor understanding of what are good proxies for learning, then they will give us a false confidence in the children and how they're doing. So, for example, if we think children completing lots of activities and tasks is a good indicator of their learning, 
we might go into test season or a, a standardized assessment week feeling really confident because their maths books are full of great work and they've completed lots of tasks but we've misjudged their performance based on task completion. And I know Mary Myatt talks mm-hmm. about this a lot, that actually, where does the learning happen in a lesson? Sometimes it happens a bit through the task when the task is well designed, mm-hmm. but mainly it's when children are thinking hard or deeply about something. And that is really hard to measure or know or to, to, to visibly see happening. So we have to think, are my explanations really clear and concise? Am I making children think really hard in lessons? And are they able to articulate their learning beyond the task? Can they express it verbally? These are better indicators, although not guarantees, that they are learning, which might make us more confident when it goes into test season. So be wary of overly trusting poor proxies for learning and go back and listen to that episode if you haven't heard it because we unpick some of the other poor indicators that children are necessarily learning and it's just to be clear on that those poor proxies aren't necessarily bad things like children being engaged or completing work they're just not guarantees they've learned anything so be careful of that another thing that i wanted to pick up that links to that steve and you said something that made me think of this is is just really being in tune to your assessment for learning in your teaching sequences regardless of the subject and it comes back to what we we're saying about reflecting on your lesson if if we're just delivering at children and we we've got lots of pre-prepared slides and we're not really responding to what they're telling us and showing us in the lesson we are missing so many tricks and often in if you take the subject of maths really good maths teachers go out their way to dig up reveal and then deal with misconceptions weaker maths teachers tend to be terrified of misconceptions coming up because they think it's a sign that they're doing something wrong so if i reveal that the kids don't know something very well or they get an answer wrong oh i must be teaching them badly no you've just done something good by digging that up now you've got the opportunity to clear that thing up and clarify that concept so uh, i would say in the lead up to test you know you want to be unpicking well not just the lead up to a test you need to be doing this all year round you need to be unpicking misconceptions intentionally across all subjects and and teaching to those misconceptions and obviously a teacher with more experience comes to know oh in year four they always find this concept (laughs) tricky in maths and that's where experience is really valuable isn't it steve and just drop them in misconceptions are a beautiful thing drop them into your lessons at any point like you said it comes with experience i'm sure it does but at the same point even from early career teaching then you can find these misconceptions out there so you know what you're going to walk into and you can guarantee that someone in your class of 30 to 35 children will be thinking of that misconception so if you get in there first you're one step ahead of the test and that's when also, Steve, the gap analysis or or not even gap analysis, but just general analysis of the test. It doesn't have to be like the massive Excel spreadsheet with ones and zeros. Some people find that helpful. Even just marking the test. If three quarters of the class got that fractions question wrong and they all did the same thing and, you know, it showed a shallow understanding of, of, yeah. of fractions, we've got to unpick that. And you know, that's where standardised assessments are a bit of a double-edged sword because they're meant to be summative and give us an indicator of performance, but they should really inform our practice and help us to become more effective teachers afterwards. So flunking a test, as you said, Steve, I think you said it would bring palpitations out for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think any teacher that cares, it would. But actually more important is what do you do about it? Don't bury your head in the sand and panic or be miserable about it. And also 
go out and ask the other staff in your school, you know, the other teaching staff. Perhaps you've got a teacher partner whose class have done better. Don't be jealous and envious of that. Go talk to them. So what, what have you been doing? Or can I observe you in that subject? Because there's something landing for you that isn't for me. And I, I, I want to be better. Go to your math subject leader, your English subject leader. Go to SLT. Say, I want to get better at this. I think as a, as a leader in a school... I always admire the teacher that wants to improve. And if they come to me worried about data, but keen to do something about it, then that's fine. That's music to my ears. Steve, I'm going to move on to another teacher scenario that I think is really important for them to be reflective during. And that is when a teacher receives some form of feedback that they perhaps find a little bit challenging to hear. Now, nobody wants to hear feedback given in a way that is unprofessional or derogatory or whatever. But let's assume it's not given like that. And it is just a bit critical, but constructive it evokes a different response in people. Some of us are more inclined to immediately put our guard up and be a bit nervous about that. I don't think we can help that. I think some people are just more like that by nature. But why is it important to to get beyond that and to, to take it on board? Well, firstly, I would like to think that we know our profession is difficult and therefore if people are giving feedback that they know can be perceived as difficult or will be challenging, then let's do it with a little bit of heart in there as well. As leadership we never want it to be an attack on a human because that's not what we're doing. We are working for the benefit of children. We are not slating someone for poor performance personally. So rip that emotion out. And at the time you're getting challenging feedback, and I've been there before, it can feel like a personal attack. Mm. But actually what you may need to do is take the feedback on. And it's hard hearing it. You do, and you're welcome to have a moment to yourself after getting the feedback or or just taking some time to be on your own to process information because I know I've experienced it with uh, other colleagues as well when they've got feedback and they've come much into my room and gone <laughs> close your door I'm going to tell you what I've just been told and you can't believe it but there's a lot of heat and there's a lot of emotion in there right at that moment so do take some time don't ignore it for sure because nothing will ever get better by burying it in the sand we've got to dig it up and we've got to get to the heart of where the feedback was coming from and feedback can be huge it can feel like a mountain whereas we're never going to climb that mountain in one day i think sometimes the worst bit about receiving critical feedback or constructive critical feedback is when you still come out and you're not overly clear about what you need to do and Mm. it hasn't been broken down clearly enough and i would say as a leader there's times i know i've given really constructive clear feedback and there's other times i've walked out of the conversation thought i'm not sure how clear i made that or how confident they were going away with what i said so i'd really encourage as part of being reflective is if you're given that thing to work on as long as you're saying it in good nature and you're not just being challenging for the sake of it, it's okay to say, can you tell me a bit more about that? Or Mm. I don't fully understand what you mean by that. Or is it possible to see someone else in the school do that? Because I know what you mean, but I'm just not really sure how I would do that. I think it's okay to say you need a little bit more clarity so that you can take that on board because there's nothing worse than knowing something's not been quite good enough, but not really knowing what to do about it. And we've I've heard lots of stories from interviews, for example, where people have had that. They've had their head call them and say, sorry, you haven't got the job. It was because this was a bit weak, but then they feel really rubbish because they Mm -hmm. weren't really told why. So, you know, that's on leaders to try and give that clear feedback. But it's also okay as the teacher to say, just say a little bit more about that. That's so true, Russ. Concise and really constructive feedback and specific is much more um, useful to any teacher. And actually as a teacher, 
you would break it down to a child like that as well. Yeah, brilliant. Now, I don't think we've probably got time for any more teacher scenarios, but just summing up that section of the podcast episode, I don't know about you, Steve, but all the most effective teachers I've worked with have been highly reflective people. They've wanted to be better. They've wanted to improve. And sometimes we have to watch on a well-being angle here that I think we spoke about this in our first ever episode, Steve, that highly conscientious teachers that are reflective are actually sometimes the ones we need to worry about as well, because they're the ones that can drive themselves into the ground. So there is a little caveat here in be super reflective, but within reason, you know, <laughs> there are days it's okay to pat yourself on the back and say that, that that's mm. good enough today. You know, I can go home, but at the same time, there's, there's like a fine balance, isn't there? Where, also those really good teachers are also kind of like so what can I do next I wonder what would work and it's that kind of intellectual curiosity and it's not about proving anything to leaders it's not about being the best it's about just personal commitment to wanting to improve day after day and in contrast those least effective perhaps teachers that I've seen over the years have have not had that openness to to really wanting to improve or have been too rigid and just a final point on that section but it's actually about leaders is it is kind to give clear honest feedback it's not kind to uh, skirt around the issue so much that that teacher doesn't know what they need to do to improve the vast majority of teachers do want to get better and would rather know if something's not quite right and that's something I have to remind myself of sometimes because you know like you Steve I can be a people pleaser and I can avoid the the slightly more frank conversation and I think I've got better at that over the years but if, if, if you're generally someone that likes to keep people happy and keep morale up, you can sometimes avoid those frank conversations, which can be done with compassion and kindness. Let's talk about leadership, Steve. This is an interesting bit of the podcast. And hopefully those of you who are teachers who are still tuned in, this is worth listening to too, because this is your maybe future uh, future direction, or you just want to be able to fly on the wall and hear us talk about what it's like to be a leader. <laughs> uh, I think it's so important, Steve, as a leader to remain really reflective. And I do, I've done more reflection as a leader than I ever did as a teacher, if I'm honest. I'm constantly thinking about what I'm doing because the buck stops with me and, and my mm-hmm. colleagues, my senior leader colleagues. So I've got a few scenarios for you, Steve, that just like feel really relevant for, for me the last few years. So one of them is you, you, you start the school year, right? And like everything's really tight and going really well. And this happened to us last year, like just the most amazing start behavior was just outstanding and stuff. And then you have these patches and, and at the time you don't know what's going on. It's kind of scary where just behavior across the school seems to slip. Now, sometimes you can have a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to a few incidents and you can feel like it's carnage and chaos when it isn't. It's just a few things that have gone wrong. But overall, there's a sense that behavior is not quite where it was, perhaps manners, perhaps a couple of kids running in corridor. You know, there's just a bit of slippage. And this can still happen even in a school like mine that has a behavior curriculum really well outlined. You know, you can still have this bit of kind of slippage. Why is it important for a leader to be reflective in a moment like that rather than to kind of knee jerk? And and if you can, sorry, it's a long question. See, how would you contrast the reaction of a leader that knee jerks in that situation compared to the reflective leader in that moment? Let me just start by saying, if you do a knee jerk reaction to anything, you're literally papering over cracks. What might that look like, though, Steve, as a leader knee jerking to poor behaviour? What would they do? Uh, again, in all guns blazing, blaming the teaching staff, blaming uh, support staff, blaming everyone right. without actually looking in the mirror. Guess what? We said it again mm. and thinking, hold on, what could be the 
the cause of this slippage, which is fairly minor. If we're talking about, hold on, some children being caught running down the corridor, and we have a walk-in policy at the school. Mm-hmm. Okay, then knee-jerk reactions to go and bark at these children, bark at all the children in assembly, for example, and tell them reinforce this rule, and then tell the staff to be more vigilant, and then get on with it. So it's an emotive reaction would be a knee jerk. Yeah. So, so anger, that word blame's interesting because the teacher that's not being reflective will also blame. They'll blame the children. They'll blame the the parents. They won't necessarily look in the mirror. Okay. So let's flip that on the, on the head. We've heard what the, the, the knee jerker leader does. What would the reaction of the, the calm reflective leader look like? Well, exactly. It would be calm for a start and to, to not feel like you've got to do it all on your own. You haven't got to come up with this immediate response that that would be the knee-jerk reaction. You need to talk to others um, of all levels of interest within the school. Even the children would be a really good insight to thinking where slippage could have occurred. And you want consistency. So you need to go back to what your aims were in the first place and how how we got up to there really because it mm. hasn't all been built in one day it's literally been a building block approach so how did we create this ethos and this culture within a school where behavior was a pinnacle and it's pretty well observed by all i love what you said about how did we build this up because you know in the scenario i painted oh it was great in the autumn what happens in the autumn we often have some sort of inset where we sit everyone down we go remember this is our system for a b and c we do some assemblies with the children where we go this is what we want to see with you these are our values then leaders are out in corridors and they're and i'm being really reflective about this myself and then somewhere in the year in the busyness and the chaos things Oh, have I stood in a corridor for the last three weeks? Nope. Have I reminded children in an assembly what my expectations are? Not in that angry way you described the knee-jerk leader doing, but in that kind of calm, positive way. Have I had some personal chats with a few of those key children? Have I kept communication with parents? And these are those reflective questions you start asking yourself and going, well, hang on blame isn't going to be very useful here i need to step back and do a bit of reflection myself but i loved what you said about sitting around with your colleagues because i think something i noticed in my senior leadership team is we all go up and down with our own emotions and sometimes we need each other to level us Mm. out i know sometimes i need jerk and perhaps i've got my own personal stress which means that the child running down the corridor looks to me like the school is in complete chaos and i might need the the assistant head that says, well, hang on, Russell, you know, actually, if I've been on a learning walk today, or I've gone down the corridor with a, you know, a visitor today, and every class was calm, it's just that one child has had a a bad day. And and that's probably taken up a lot of your time. So it feels as though things have really, you know, gone downhill. So I think sometimes as leaders and and teachers can do this for each other, too, we can be the voice of reason that just has that person calmed down and see the situation for what it is? You know, yes, maybe behavior has slipped a bit, but what got us to that point where it was going well before? And the analogy I often think about, you know, when you're ill or you're unwell, so you do the things to get yourself better. So you have a healthy diet or you take the medicine. And then when you feel better, you stop doing all those things. Yes, exactly. And then you slowly slip mm-hmm. back again. School cultures like that, isn't it? We do all these yeah. great things to make us well and healthy as a school culture behavior for example and then we stop doing those things and then wonder why yeah it's gone and, back and do you know what they have the analogy uh well the example of children going down the corridor or coming in from play 
there is that. It has to be in their face. They're children. They're not going to remember and have it ingrained in their mind without constant reminders and consistency. And the minute a child can see someone do something that perhaps is stretching this uh, scenario, like walking really quickly or, or walking backwards, you know you know how children fall down corridors in so many different ways, but <laughs> there, there are always a little bit of slackness around not one person, but an entity in that building. And therefore, you need that consistency in right. raising the expectation back. And you're so right. In September, it is beautiful. You don't have a problem class in September because everyone comes back with brilliant, perfected uniform on. They, they know every expectation mm-hmm. going. The staff have just been reminded. SLT is visual and in your face and there in the corridors. And, and it's when it goes a bit quieter that we can start to see this. So, yeah, go back to what works and build it up again. You reminded me of that great quote from um, Sam Strickland, who does a lot on behaviour, written a couple of great books on this stuff and that the whole what you permit you promote and that slippage you described of those little things we start to let go mm-hmm. i've done that before and i've you know through tiredness because it takes energy to be this proactive leader but it's understanding that that proactive approach stops that slippage just getting out of control and, and leading yeah. to chaos but i'd always uh, say to leaders you know first and foremost have you got systems for that yeah. thing whether that be lining up or how we behave in in the classroom and so on then are we making our expectations super clear like precisely clear you know you were joking about children pushing the boundaries or walking backwards or or have we told them how we expect them to move around the corridors in in quite specific detail have we told them how we expect them to ask to go to the toilet you know if we're not precise about this we can't be annoyed with them if they're, mm. they're not doing it the way we like so these are those reflective conversations that i love having as a leader and you know you move from that initial panic to actually calm logical solutions that that can help shift things on and i think steve i'm going to skip over this one slightly but it's the same as we talked about there culturally with behavior with things like staff morale or staff energy levels being very down you know there are times where in the school year i think oh everyone's really buoyant there's a nice Mm -hmm. vibe to the place everyone feels good then other times you think oh god everyone's really down everyone's really tired everyone's worn out and you know it's those same reflective conversations of you know do i need to panic here and knee jerk or is it about listening getting together with people bringing that human first nature again like we talked about being visible as leaders have I been a bit too much in my office have I been out there listening to people and making sure they feel valued have I been saying thank you or have I forgot to do that for a while and these are all things as a leader I regularly think about because I know I slip back you know and and that's because I'm plate spinning I'm trying to do it all really well and it's the same for teachers too um Steve another one that I'm really interested in from a leader's point of view is that kind of implementation cycle Mm -hmm. of something so uh here's a classic you know in my school four years ago we arrive and I do about 18 months of math mastery training and then four years later I, I might realize that some of those things that I taught people about or explained just aren't happening anymore mm. well my initial reaction the blame game could be why aren't they doing that or they're not <laughs> bothered or I explain that well why are they not doing it you know and I can have all these insecure negative thoughts about that and if I if I were inclined to, I could be very knee-jerk about that. What does the reflective leader do in terms of the things I've implemented aren't quite there anymore? What was so interesting there, Russ, with your example is that you said four years ago. Okay, mm-hmm. we'll go and So time has been a factor in that. You, you mm-hmm. have four years and for 18 months, 
it was very heavily focused. But and that play will keep spinning in the background, but it also needs to come to the foreground now and then. And it is that juggling act of what is important because actually staff turnover would have happened in that time. Yeah. Um, different practices, maybe a different scheme that you're following. You you may have just started implementing white race and different initiatives like oh manipulatives need to be thrown at children in math lessons. So teachers and support staff have a huge job on their hand understanding all that we expect them to know and that we think oh we've delivered training on that so that must be done we can move on to if you're looking at mass that oh, right now let's try and tackle that reading because that's been tricky for a few years as well so actually as a reflective leader we need to examine when did we last deliver some decent training on that did we re- did we go back to it have we been consistent in our approach of informing staff on inset for example that this is the way to go have we given time to a lead to talk mm. about their subjects and tell them this is how we can we, we should be doing it here and actually supporting the staff as well yeah. or have we gone this is how you're going to do it i've got a lovely printout for you as well to take that away because these are some slides that i've done four years ago go with it and i'm sure you'll get on well, well hold on as leaders we're there to support staff anyway yeah and i think that thing on support steve bespoke support you know if you take yeah, any yeah. subject we're, we're generalists as primary teachers so for maths there will be certain people that just always find that a bit trickier because it's just not their strongest subject so if i'm a maths lead or a senior lead what am i doing about that if if i've got a hunch that their practice might be a little bit weaker I can't just leave that and hope for the best. It will sort itself out. I'm sure they want to be better, but I need to be proactive in helping them. I need to engage them in conversations about that. And that's a real challenge as a leader. So I think everything you said there is such sage advice about revisiting. And we know, you know, from Everton House's forgetting curve with children that Mm. forgetting is a natural thing. Well, it is with teachers too. They will start to forget. But then part of interrupting that forgetting curve is retrieval practice. I need to come back to that. But I need to do that on sometimes an individual basis as well as whole staff CPD. And I think probably a, a wise place to look is Mark Enser and Zoe Enser's CPD book on on some advice about the CPD cycle and doing that effectively. That's probably a, a wise place for people to look if they're, mm. they're curious about that. Steve, another leader one is actually like the teacher one earlier is when we talked about teachers feeling depressed when the results are dodgy. What about when leaders get some SATS results or some standardised test data across the school and there's there's like a massive weakness in a particular area? It's tempting again to just feel very annoyed about that, isn't it? Or feel like a failure or to get very down in the dumps. Poor results can happen. It's okay. We can acknowledge it can happen. But again, talk to other people because guess what? Our ideas are not the only ideas. And do you know what, Russ? This is where even having the Twitter sphere and Facebook and support networks outside of our buildings can be really useful to talk yeah, to definitely. people. Mm. And I've benefited off it, and I've, you probably have too. And we've, we've met some wonderful people along the way. But when poor results happen, then there's going to be an explanation for it. And sometimes it takes a, a finer comb than other times um, because it might be quite obvious as to what this problem may be. And it might have just been a slippage in our expectations at school, and it can go wider than that. But take time reflect get in there and talk to staff members of uh, of levels that can support with this decision talk to the teachers i don't like the word monitoring but actually we need to check 
what we've done to support that subject, not just to support the children, but to support the promotion of the subject and the delivery of the subject and, and really dig in where some of these weaknesses may have come from. Because like you said, maybe the training wasn't there. We haven't supported our staff, so we're guilty for that. I think what you're talking about there is really intelligent data analysis. Mm -hmm. And you said not to knee jerk, and there's nothing worse than working in a school where particularly if, for example, you're a year six teacher and it's the, the, the reaction is based on your SATS results. Oh, yeah. They're not your SATS results, they're key stage results, they're whole school results. But to then have a, a, a very knee jerk reaction about year six yeah. and about what we're the year doing. Six they must have flanked off. Yeah. yeah, I found I found that very hard as both as an assistant head working up in five six, but also as a as an upper key stage two teacher. Mm. I think there's so many things with intelligent data analysis you need to be thinking. You know, really carefully going through with that fine comb you talked about and and putting all the different people around the table that have a, a useful insight on that data. But some questions to ask yourself. Is the data revealing a specific issue with a specific teacher or teaching yeah. team? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is. Mm -hmm. Sometimes mm -hmm. it is. And again, that doesn't mean I need to go be horrible to that person or mm -hmm. blast that person. It might be that they're really inexperienced. That actually, we've left them to their own devices too much and they haven't had the support they've needed. But that there have been times where data has triangulated and there should always be this triangulation. Yeah. If, for example, I'm a two, four entry school or three, four entry school, and there's one teacher in that year group team whose data is much poorer, is that a cohort issue? Have they got a class that just has very different makeup? Or does that also triangulate with the fact that we have had some worries about that person's mm. teaching and, you know, they are less experienced or don't seem to be as reflective or we did see some worrying teaching or the books weren't right. If it triangulates, well, what are you going to do about that for that individual next year or for the next term? what support challenge whatever it might be and that's about knowing your staff some people do need a slightly more traditional form of monitoring and to keep them sort of focused and on the ball some need that more dialogic feedback and I think that's what I've learned is you've got to tailor it to the individual and what's going mm -hmm. to get the best outcome for those yeah. children sometimes it's not specific to a teacher but it's indicative of weak systems in over time so for example if we've not got a clear curriculum for that particular subject area well however much individual lessons might be taught well if there's not a good clear curriculum for English or maths for example those children won't make good progress over time so we need to be asking those questions have we got good systems for ways we do things it might reveal a subject knowledge issue you know are all my teachers really mathsy but they don't really like writing very much or vice versa and is that is that a bit of an issue or 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 that they're just not so confident in that subject area. So I need to do some more CPD around their subject knowledge. Is it something about the journey that cohort has taken? So something I would love to do in future, I always say I'll do it, Stephen, I never get round to mm. it, is I think what you should have in every SLT office up and down the country is all your cohorts, right? But below them, the list of every teacher they've had since they were in nursery or reception. Mm. So you can constantly be aware of the journey they've had because we often measure the quality of their teaching based on who they've got at the moment and how they're performing. But let's say you, they're in a teacher's class in autumn term and the standardized tests have they've done really poorly, right? But you look back through that grid you've got on your board and last year they had two teachers because someone went off sick and then they covered and then they left. The year before that, they had an NQT who was lovely, but they were an NQT, so they weren't that effective in their first year of teaching. Then the year before that, they had some other carnage happen in that cohort and some again, someone went off sick. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think Absolutely. we lose sight sometimes of the journey, yet the class next door, oh, 
they've had a really steady journey all the way through to year five and no interruption and steady teacher after steady teacher. And here I am in autumn of year five saying this teacher's better than this one or weaker than this one, when actually there's a wider context that intelligent reflection is something I've never got round to doing. But I think it's interesting for you as an SLT to have a sense of what's that journey look like for that class. Mm. And that's not to bash any individual teachers. But of course, if you've had loads of NQTs and people go off sick and stuff, your journey has been disrupted. And I'm sure I saw some research years ago that said, if you have one year of kind of poor teaching it takes two years of good teaching to make up that 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 yeah so i think intelligent analysis of data looking at all that broader context is helpful Mm. before knee jerk and don't you i mean you know that i'm going to pester you all summer until you do that yeah Yeah. (laughs) i'm going to be asking for a journey for you (laughs) but actually that's such a great thing to do because i can think of personally um at my school when a class got to year five and it was getting more problematic um, and behaviour in one particular class of really sick. But I took time to reflect and, and we looked at the journey they had had. And since reception, and bear in mind they're in year five now, they didn't have one consistent year. Mm. They had either a teacher left and we got replacement. And that's not to say the teacher wasn't better or, or on par with the person that left, but actually it was just constant disruption. Change, yeah. Yeah. And it's not necessarily that the knowledge of that is going to change anything massively now, no. other than just being sensible about your reaction. You know, it might yeah. stop you pinning all the blame on this one person that's got them at this very moment but instead going okay actually this class Mm. had a really disrupted journey so do they need a bit more time spent on the basics that they probably didn't have or when was their real disruption gosh it was in year two when they should have been learning their tens twos and fives tables no wonder they're still catching up with that now okay do we need to put a rigorous times tables plan in for the next term where they do a bit more of that it's that kind of reflection that I'm interested in. It's not just to to make an excuse because mm-hmm. this podcast is not about excuses. It's not about coming up with a list of reasons right. to make ourselves feel better. It's about coming up with intelligent reflections that allow us to come up with calm, logical, incisive responses rather than, you know, these knee-jerk reactions we've talked about. Steve, it's been fun to reflect on being reflective, and I hope it's given our listeners some insights. It's been a little while since Steve and I recorded our last episode. We've been both extremely busy, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you have, please don't forget that you can uh, rate us on whatever podcast provider you are listening on. Different ones seem to do different things, but I know on Apple you can give us a five-star rating. We've got 70 ratings on apple Podcasts, which have us at five stars so we would love some more with some reviews it really does lead to more people getting to listen to our podcast which we're incredibly grateful for thank you so much for supporting us for your kind words when you reach out and you tweet us or you facebook message us or you instagram message us please keep doing that because it gives me and steve that little fire in our bellies to keep going when we're tired and stressed so thank you so much everybody thank you the dynamic deputies